Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So this student is saying, hi friends, maybe someone can explain this question from pocket prep. A patient has less than 50% intake for 72 hours and complains of poor PO intake. You should do what? So you have options of begin enteral nutrition, provide vitamin and mineral supplementation, liberalized diet, encourage patient to consume small frequent meals. And so they're saying the correct answer is liberalized diet, but how do you know when there's no information, you know, kind of offered about the diet? What if the diet's already liberalized? So this is a good question too, where it's good to kind of chat it out because you might have kind of good rationale to get this question. And then you're like, okay, why am I wrong? So when we're looking at this, so the first kind of piece of information is we're saying, the patient has had less than 50% intake for 72 hours, complaining of a poor appetite. So the first answer option is to begin enteral nutrition. So what I would do here is I would kind of loop back to our ASPENI guidelines and thinking kind of about like, is this patient malnourished? Now, again, we don't have a lot of information on this patient, but we're saying, okay, less than 50% intake for 72 hours right? They're not going to classify quite yet with our acute malnutrition, right? Our acute malnutrition is going to be thinking about not having less than 50% intake for um, greater than five days. So they're not really kind of at the threshold where if this is my only data point, I'm not necessarily wanting to kind of pull the trigger to say on this one quite yet. Then we say, begin vitamin and mineral supplementation. Like, okay, you know, that's a good option. Okay, then we're saying liberalized diet, right, which is definitely a huge cause of patients, you know, not eating too much, and then encourage patients to have small, frequent meals. So this one I can see is definitely, you know, I would kind of be between, if this was all the information I had for my patient, encouraging the patient to consume kind of small, frequent meals. Um, but they're saying pocket prep was saying liberalized diet. So this is definitely one where it could definitely go either way. On this one, what's going to be helpful with liberalizing the diet is you're going to be giving them all the options because if the issue is just poor appetite, hopefully when you're giving them all the options, they at least are going to be able to kind of have something. I see this a lot in my cardiac patients where they're like, I don't want the food unsalted. And then you like give them a liberalized diet and they're like, oh, perfect. Um, but again, I would be between on this one, liberalized diet or encourage the small frequent meals too. And with these type of questions, you want to think kind of what's the best first step. You're not necessarily saying I can't do other things, but thinking kind of like what's the best first step too. Next question we got was asking about, you know, what are the recommendations for diet and tips for kids on the autism spectrum? So for the exam, this kind of, you know, condition state falls within neuro 
And so what we want to be able to think about for the exam is that a lot of children who are having autism, they're having pickier palates. They're more kind of, you know, specific in the foods that they will or they will not eat. And so one of our biggest concerns is vitamin and mineral deficiencies for these patients because they're not having, you know, kind of varied intake. So that's kind of our first thing to... A lot of time you're seeing, you know, higher rates of kind of being overweight and obese because they tend to kind of prefer the processed foods too. Um, there's also, you know, conversation around like, you know, is there a diet that's like good for autism, can help? And there's not, you know, beyond kind of like having a healthy, varied diet, there's not like a specific diet for autism. Um, you know, definitely trying to kind of get them to eat a variety of different foods and then also thinking you don't need to limit, you know, like red dye and things like that. That's not necessarily going to be, you know, mixed with, you know, worsened autism, quote unquote. And so for these kids, like I said, the number one thing is to kind of try to get them to have as varied diet as possible. And then I would definitely say a multivitamin as well. Okay, next question we have, this is one off of Pocket Prep. A clinical dietitian is planning to start parental nutrition on a patient. Which of the following lab values would indicate the appropriate time to initiate feeding for the patient? Okay, so we have lots of kind of combinations with like flipped answers, which can always be tough when the answers are so similar. So option one, we have increased CRP, decreased prealbumin. We have decreased albumin and decreased prealbumin. We have increased CRP and increased creatinine. And then we have decreased CRP and increased prealbumin. And the student's saying, pocket prep said the answer is D. I'm a little bit confused why. And this is a really, really great question too. So these type of questions, a lot of the time, they're not necessarily saying, but they're more kind of thinking on like our critically ill patients. So right, we know the relationship between albumin inflammation is that when CRP is high, we're expecting albumin to be low because albumin is a negative acute phase protein, which means when the body is inflamed, our liver is going to have hepatic reprioritization. And what that's going to cause us to do is even if I have like the most protein, I have good nutritional status, then I'm going to have reduced albumin mostly because what we're saying there is the body's just like, I don't need to make albumin right now. So when we're looking at this one, you know, with the answer being D, that decreased CRP, sometimes what we're trying to kind of think of too is we want the inflammation to decrease a little bit. This wouldn't necessarily be the case for like a floor patient, but this is more thinking like a patient in ICU, you know, maybe they're in shock. We're kind of waiting for their body um, to recover a little bit. So D is saying that we're starting to see kind of that decreased inflammation, right? CRP is going down and then prealbumin is, is increasing as that inflammation is coming down. Next question, this student was saying, this is a question out of Inman. So we have a patient with Crohn's disease needs the following diet. Our options are high fat, high calorie, high protein, low fat only with steatorrhea and B12 and vitamin C supplementation, 
we have calories according to BMI, high protein, or low calorie, low residual, low um, fat soluble, and then supplement fat soluble vitamins and B12. So with this one, what we want to be thinking of is first kind of what is Crohn's disease, right? Crohn's disease is the is it inflammatory bowel disease, and it's that inflammation of the GI tract. It can occur anywhere in the GI tract, typically is impacting the ileum. So right away, one thing we should be thinking about is B12, for sure. And so we have high fat, high calorie, high protein, right? That one can, you know, is definitely a possibility. Then we have low fat, only with steatorrhea, vitamin C, and B12. That one is a really, really great one because I, if I'm having steatorrhea, right, which is excess fat greater than 70 grams of fat in your stool, I definitely want to be restricting it, but otherwise I do not need to. And then calories according to BMI, high protein. That one is another great one too because I'm feeding the patient, and if they're not in a flare, so this is saying they're not necessarily in a flare at that time, I definitely want to be giving high protein at all times, but they don't need, if they're not in a flare, like excessive calories too. And then we have low calorie, which right off the bat, we should cross that one out before even reading the next one. So on this question, the way it's phrased in Indian is it's giving you kind of combinations of which two diets would be the best. So in this one, the best two diet options for our Crohn's patient would be low fat only with steatorrhea and then giving vitamin C and B12 because when they're not in a flare, they're still likely to be deficient of those. And then also calories according to BMI with a high protein at all times. Okay, next one, we got a math one from me. And so if you don't already have your calculator, grab that. Ah, scrap piece of paper. I almost knocked my tripod over on the live. Um, so this one's saying, based on an eight-hour day, the number of workers, um, the number of hours worked in the hospital food service department are 55,267 hours for the year. The total number of paid food service hours was 59,995 hours. And then the question is, what was the actual number of productive FTE hours? And this is why I love when you guys comment, because right away people were like, oh, that's just wrong, right? How could you, you know, have, be paying more hours than you're working? And what I want you to think about, right, is think about overtime, right? So if I paid you for overtime, right, if I paid, if you worked, one hour, right, I would have to pay you for 1.5 hours. So this isn't necessarily saying, you know, anything's kind of wrong. What this is more saying is that some of the hours worked were overtime, so they were paying you more than this. And so what we're doing here is we want to kind of focus on the number of actual hours that we worked, right? So even though we paid for the extra money, we don't want to account for that because some of that, right? So like if I had someone work two hours of overtime and they're getting time and a half, right? That'd be three hours paid. So I don't need someone to work three hours, but I need you to work two. 
So what we want to do is take the number of hours worked, the 55,267, and then what we're doing there is I'm dividing it by the hours per year for FTE. So this is a standard. This is 2,080. And when I do that, I see that I need 26.57 FTEs to work all this time. So this is a great question to kind of have on the page because again, if you got this one, you're like, what? Right? It can definitely, it can definitely be tricky for sure. Next one is less of a question and more as a reminder that the Facebook page has lots of great resources, including my selling pricing method study guide. So definitely if you haven't grabbed that yet, head to the Facebook page. If you're on the podcast, go below in the show notes. And if you're watching live on the Facebook page, just search selling methods and you will find it there too. Okay. Next one, we got a question from one of my students asking if we can explain the relationship between plasma glucagon, plasma glucose, and then plasma insulin. So to kind of break down this question, one thing we want to be thinking about is what do each of these kind of do? So glucagon is going to be the hormone that is released when my blood sugar is low because what that's going to do is it's going to be telling the liver to break down glycogen. So if I'm kind of thinking about my levels of glucagon throughout the day, it's pretty steady, but what we're going to see is a spike in glucagon when my blood sugars are having kind of a big drop between meals. Now, plasma glucose, how that's going to respond is we're expecting to kind of see peaks and valleys between our meals. And like I said, when we're having those valleys, we should be having glucagon released. And then insulin, right, is going to be in response to our meals to help get glucose into the cells. So what I should be seeing with my, with my insulin trends is I should be seeing a spike after meals and then kind of like really big kind of spikes and then down, spikes and then down, because we're thinking I kind of just need this insulin mostly for my meals. And then I just kind of all the time releasing a basal amount to help allow the liver glycogen that's getting put into glucose to be converted, I mean, to be transported back into, back into my cells. Okay, next one, we have a question from a student and she's saying, why would this be preparation? So it says, during the nutrition counseling session, a client states to the dietitian, I want my blood sugars to be lower, but I'm having trouble sticking to the right amount of carbs. Which stage would this client likely be in? So when we're thinking about stages, this is our trans-theoretical um, stages of change model. And what we want to do on this question is kind of loop back and be like, okay, well, what are my different options, right? So the first one is pre-contemplation. This is your patient who is like, mm -mm, I'm not ready, no thank you, right? So this wouldn't apply to this patient, right? Because they're saying, I want my blood sugars to be low. In pre-contemplation, the patient will be saying, I don't care about my blood sugars. Then the next one we have is pre-contemplation, right? Where they're typically saying, you know, like, I want to have my blood sugars be lower, you know, but, and then the but is going to be 
some sort of barrier. So with this one, right, this can be, you know, very similar to our content, our, our contemplation where they're saying, you know, I want my blood sugars to be lower, but I'm having trouble sticking to the right amount of carbs. So this one, I can definitely see where this student is getting confused of, you know, why isn't this one pre-contemplation? I mean, why isn't this one contemplation? And so then we want to think about the, what is the preparation, right? So the preparation is when this patient is, you know, they're talking about, you know, like that they know what they should do, right? They're kind of planning. They're saying, I'm going to check my blood sugars, you know? So the reason why I'm thinking this question was more labeled as preparation is because they've already been checking their blood sugars too, but this one can definitely also be seen as contemplation because they're saying that, that, but, so the, but is usually kind of the key point of when we're thinking about our, our contemplation. The big reason why it's that preparation is because they're already kind of checking their blood sugars and they're already kind of having an idea of, you know, that I need to control my carbs, but this one's definitely a trickier one. Okay. Next one we have is from E-Red Prep. And it says the AP, right, as purchased of chicken breast with bones and skin on it cost, costs $3.50 per pound. EP, or edible portion yield percent, is 0.53. What is the EP price for one pound of chicken? That's boneless, skinless. So this student was saying, I memorized all the formulas for EP, AP percent yield, but what is AP yield? So this is a great example of a question where you guys know how to answer this, but they're switching the wording to try to confuse you. So what EP yield percentage is saying is this is just saying another way to be saying this is what we're left with, right? This is saying this is my percent yield. So you just want to watch the wording on the questions because sometimes they can say like this recipe yielded four pounds. And if they're saying it that way, then what we're going to be saying is that four pounds is edible portion. But this one is saying EP yield percent. So remember, percent yield is always in percent versus EP and AP would be in weight. So let's take a crack at this one, right? So I want to be thinking about what is my EP price equation. So I always like to think about this as what you handed the cashier on top in dollars. And then the denominator is going to be what I'm left with, my EP weight. So this one is one pound, so it almost makes it easier for us. So what I want to be thinking is if I have one pound of one pound of my as purchased, right, I'm going to hand the cashier $3.50. So that's my numerator. My denominator is what I'm left with. So if it there's a 53% yield and I'm just buying one pound, my denominator would be 0.53 pounds. I do that, I'm getting $6.60 per pound. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about 
the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.